0: You're very welcome to my podcast show, Technologies Impacting Society. And in podcast 11, I got to speak to Matt Sheenan. Matt is a fellow at the Paulson Institute's in-house think tank, Marco Polo, where he leads the team's work on the US-China technology issues and specializes in artificial intelligence. Based in San Francisco in the Bay Area, he was formerly the China correspondent For the World Post. Then from 2010 to 2016, Matt lived and worked between the Chinese cities of Xi'an and Beijing. Then in 2016, he moved back to the Bay Area to work as an analyst, a consultant, and writer on topics connecting China and California. In 2018, he was selected as a finalist for the Young China Watcher of the Year award. In this podcast, Matt gets to the very heart of the current tensions in technology between Silicon Valley and China, its intermingled history, and the tentative future ahead.
1: So my name is Matt Sheehan, currently a fellow at the Paulson Institute's think tank, Macropolo, where I focus on the US-China technology relationship. And the book that I've written is called The Trans-Pacific Experiment, how China and California collaborate and compete for our future so it covers the sort of very rich and diverse connections between china and california i grew up in california and i spent about six years in china working as a reporter and learning the language and it looks at makes the argument that california is kind of ground zero for a new era of u.s china relations and in certain sectors particularly the hollywood china relationship and the silicon valley china relationship These connections will end up shaping not just U.S.-China relations, but parts of the global community in very important ways, particularly when it comes to emerging technologies, global culture, and the like.
0: How did the book come about?
1: I very much kind of stumbled into this. I grew up in Palo Alto, and as of 2008, if you asked me what I knew about China, I probably would have just said, you know, Mao Zedong, Tiananmen Square, Factory of the World. But by chance, I got a summer job there in 2008. I ended up in Beijing, and I was just completely fascinated with the country. So I moved back in 2010 and lived and worked there for a few years. And I always wanted to be a a journalist, a China correspondent over there. But when I finally got that job, I had a lot of trouble getting a journalist visa. The Chinese government doesn't always love giving out new journalist visas. So I was a China correspondent. I'd been hired, but I was based in the Bay Area. And so... I started looking for China stories in California and in the Bay Area, and I just found that there were really rich and diverse stories out there. So I started interviewing Chinese engineers, software engineers, who were working in Silicon Valley, interviewing former Chinese Chinese people who had been working in places like Google and Facebook and had gone back to China to found their own startups and just picking up these storylines in a bunch of different industries, with tech being the kind of richest and densest. And so for the past, I was in 2013, for the past five or six years, I've basically been following these stories back and forth across the Pacific as a journalist over there. And since coming back here and working at uh, the Paulson Institute's Macro Polo as kind of a uh, analyst of the technology relationship in many areas, but lately, particularly focusing you know, on artificial intelligence
0: the timing seems to be pretty apt for the book you, you know you spoke there about the Chinese communities There's how strong is the Chinese community in San Francisco in particular in the Bay Area?
1: Uh, very very strong I mean here you have it's kind of a nature and nurture thing in the sense that there are deep historical roots that established a Chinese community in the Bay Area San Francisco Chinatown is usually called the world's or the America's first Chinatown and So, you already have a kind of cultural underpinning in some ways. But then, industries like Silicon Valley have attracted tons and tons of what I call sort of new wave immigrants, folks who come here maybe for grad school and stay on to work in Silicon Valley. So, you know, I visit Google Campus sometimes, and if you're walking through the cafeteria, it feels like the first language is English, but a close second, the second language is Chinese in the cafeteria. And so that creates a very rich set of sort of human connections between the places, whereas the relationship used to be sort of more high level and and abstract. My argument in the book is that it's very much been brought down to a a human level with Chinese engineers working with American engineers, Chinese entrepreneurs, you know, taking their experience here and going back to China and sort of making a a much freer flow of people and ideas between the places.
0: So the development then with the the engineers returning back to China the, the the fast speed of the development out there why why is that matt
1: yeah i mean when it comes to the growth of the chinese technology scene there's a lot of factors that went into place some of which were you know sort of well thought out and some of which china very much sort of stumbled into so i think one key ingredient was the great firewall and creating what is functionally sort of a, a semi protected domestic market such that as of 2006, 7, 8, or I guess 9, 10 especially, you did not have Facebook just kind of like washing over the Chinese market as the de facto social media. Instead, you created a space where a lot of Chinese companies were able to grow their own business organically and get to a sort of healthy level on their own without being just kind of you know, crushed in their in their infancy the way a lot of technology companies in other or sort of smaller developing countries have been. So first you have this sort of domestic, you have a protected domestic market. You also have that domestic market being large enough to warrant major, major investment. The fact that if you as a Chinese company are able to capture the Chinese market to truly capture it, then you're already potentially one of the largest internet companies in the world. So that draws in further investment, that draws your sort of overseas engineers back and all that. Finally, you have a lot of kind of an agglomeration of resources. The Chinese government has always put a high priority on technological prowess, and so they've put a lot of money into funding, say, incubators, um, into expanding higher education enrollment in China, in some cases, to attracting overseas Chinese engineers to come back and found their own startups. I think when you kind of put these different factors together, a semi protected domestic market, or in some cases, fully protected domestic market, a very large domestic market such that it has a real gravitational pull um, and can make real money and then sort of a, just a reaching a critical mass of domestic resources when it comes to financing, to talent, um, to compute and to all these different factors.
0: Because of the vast numbers that that come from China, is that really, you know, with most people being so driven, I mean, obviously it's to do do with their, you know, the history of their background history. Some people come from, there's a lot of poverty in China, so there'll be a huge drive to succeed. It's instilled in in their culture, kind of a return on their investment with going back.
1: Yeah, I think you see the Chinese history, both in sort of a long view, you know, thousand years, two thousand years, and also in a short view, the last thirty years, fifty years. Both of those are huge influences on the way that the Chinese technology scene has developed in one way or another. If you look, you know, very far back into history, obviously it's a culture with traditionally a huge emphasis on education. And so given the level of development in the country, there has they have sort of overachieved in terms of the number of university students, the number of those pursuing higher degrees, and the number of those that are studying and receiving advanced degrees abroad. Also, in sort of a historical sense, Chinese culture has more of an emphasis on obviously on rote learning and not such a not such a focus on originality or not such a focus that what one does has to be different. That sort of copying and, and learning from the past sages in traditional culture, but also in the current day, you know, learning from the best and copying that and then tweaking it is seen as more acceptable probably than here where we everything has to be kind of brand new everything has to be a totally original idea those are kind of like maybe long-term historical influences in the more short term i think that the rapid speed of growth in the last 30 years and not just like the rapid speed of growth but the way it drove this kind of um bit of like a doggy dog mentality or a sense that you had to you had to jump on every new trend. You had to be early in anything, because as the Chinese market, all markets, the real estate market was opening up. You know, if you were the first mover, if you really piled into an industry right at the start, you had a chance to get rich. So you have a very strong incentive to kind of move quickly and also to kind of pile into what's the new hot thing. So that formed a sort of a a very cutthroat, competitive domestic internet industry and I think you kind of put all these three factors together, and they're all sort of double-edged swords. Emphasis on education, but maybe they lose something in terms of praxis. Emphasis on imitation can probably get you kind of kickstart or bootstrap your technology industry, but then does it end up becoming a limiting factor? And this tendency to kind of to move quickly and to pile into new industries that can sort of yeah kickstart very rapid development of we saw this very much with like the on-demand services economy over there once Uber took off in the U.S. suddenly in China it was on-demand everything 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 hmm. most of those businesses hmm. failed and and went broke but it did kind of kickstart that kickstart that trend and just kind of spawn a lot of new business models so all of these things are sort of double-edged swords in some ways but I think the the cultural impact going backwards is a very interesting force in China's technology development.
0: So the competition is really a winner takes all mentality.
1: Often it is. Yeah. Often it is. I mean the you could say very much the same thing for US technology companies and you know especially when it comes to like network effects and the way that we compete here, but in China you see especially a willingness to throw tons and tons and tons of resources specifically mm. money. A new industry, in hopes of kind of crushing all the competitors, becoming the leader, and you know jumping to unicorn status and beyond. Whereas I think uh, there's a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more caution, a little bit less willingness to just throw money at a problem in the U.S. And people want to see a kind of a a cleaner business model, a cleaner route to profitability.
0: Okay, so where where does all the, the money comes from the government?
1: No, uh, most of the money I would say comes from the private sector. Okay. The, the Chinese venture capital industry is still very young, still very new. I think as of 2009-10 it was really just uh, all you had were sort of you know, a handful of angel investors that then sort of moved up the chain into different stages of venture capital investment. So when it comes to venture capital, uh, it definitely started as a private thing and it, I think in many ways has remained largely a private industry but the government has clearly gotten interested and it has put resources in it in a couple of different ways. In some ways, they've found some sort of clever ways to do venture capital investment where they will functionally seed venture capital funds such that if there's a lot of upside, the private sector investors get to keep it. But if it fails and there's downside, the government eats that downside or or it shares in that cost at the very least. And so that has been a that has definitely had an effect and boosted the venture capital ecosystem out here but i wouldn't describe it as sort of a government led effort where they have put a lot of money into it is in things that they're kind of uh, better at the chinese government has put a ton of has a ton of experience building things it has a ton of experience with real estate and so when a new hot thing comes along like uh, the mobile internet and they decide they want to uh, support it They will, this happened in the last decade or so, they just put a ton of money into opening incubators around the country, because that's a physical building. That's something that the Chinese government knows very well. And Mm. in many ways, those kind of movements of building tons and tons of incubators were very sort of inefficient in a local sense. A lot of them failed. A lot of them were not really incubators. They were kind of more real estate schemes. But they may have had the effect of helping sort of lever up the ecosystem. The Chinese government is always willing to kind of overspend to achieve a certain effect. And in this case, yeah, their spending in these areas might be highly inefficient, but it can often still prove effective in levering up the ecosystem and just kind of bringing together that critical mass of resources.
0: Okay, with, with all the com- competition and the rush to be first, where does the, where does the collaboration come in, Matt?
1: Sure. So I think that the collaboration specifically between China and California, the most interesting period of this uh, in the technology space was basically the last seven or eight years, sort of 2010 to 2017, 18 this is a period of time. I refer to it as uh, if you got to put a label on it, I call it Silicon Valley's China paradox. And I describe that paradox as during this period of time, you had a very free and rich flow of people, of money and of ideas between the two ecosystems. You had China's tech giants setting up research labs in Silicon Valley. You had Silicon Valley giants setting up research labs in China. You had these engineers and entrepreneurs bouncing back and forth between the places. um, Venture capital flowing both directions and both ecosystems starting to kind of look to each other and learn from each other in certain ways. Whereas for decades, basically it had been China looking to Silicon Valley for inspiration beginning with the rise of things like WeChat, the rise of things like bike sharing. Suddenly you saw America, Silicon Valley specifically, and other countries around the globe looking to China for inspiration in certain ways. So this period of time, 2010 to 2017, 18, you have these very rich flows at sort of the grassroots level or the non-governmental level at the very least. But when it came to companies and markets, and the internet itself, it was sort of more divided than ever. U.S. companies were largely blocked in China, or a few of them were sort of outcompeted, and Chinese companies were not really able to gain a foothold in the United States or in most of developed Europe. So that's sort of what I refer to as the paradox, the free flow of everything at the lower levels, and yet the companies can't cross these divides. The companies are functionally sort of walled off from each other. And that this was a very rich period for collaboration, for sort of mutual inspiration, for companies that started to um, have a foothold down in both places, at least in terms of research and development, and what we're seeing now in the U.S.-China relationship is an attempt to kind of resolve this paradox by by pulling all these ties apart, by making it much harder on Chinese students or researchers to work in the U.S., Mm -hmm. Um, stopping Chinese money from getting into the U.S. and investing in the U.S. PC scene, and uh, also trying to sort of wall off ideas between the two places, uh, limiting research, limiting the ability to share <coughs> research across national boundaries. And so that's kind of the phase that we're in right now with the technology relationship and the U.S.-China trade war, which I really see more as a technology conflict.
0: I mean, do you not see it as being a technological war? I think this is what it's going to lead into, and then you know, who do you think is going to win the war?
1: Mm, yeah, I think that from you know the because this has grown out of the the, the Trump administration, and so it has a lot of the just kind of general uh, scleroticness of being a little bit of everything and constantly gyrating and changing form and stuff like that. But I think if you look what are sort of the more, what are some of the deeper underlying motivations? It's not necessarily just about trade, shipping goods and services back and forth across the border. It's much more focused on technological advantage between the two places.
0: You know, that was always what le- led to winning wars in the past. I mean, when the Portuguese sailed, they had better boats. You know, when they went to invade, yeah. they had better boats, better sails, whatever. So it's always been the, the advantage. So why would it be any, any different?
1: So in this case, it's partly because the U.S. like this is new to the U.S.-China relationship because the United States didn't really take China seriously as a technological power for a very long yeah. time. It wasn't until the last really five years, six years that you saw people in the U.S. government and people in the U.S. private sector saying, wow, like maybe Chinese technology companies, maybe Chinese researchers could challenge U.S. sort of supremacy in these areas. And that has been, it was something that happened slowly over time in in reality on the ground and I think in many ways, the U.S. still has a clear advantage in many emerging technology sectors. But the sort of the pendulum has swung from thinking China can't compete at all to thinking China is going to eat our lunch in so many of these sectors. And that has set off sort of alarm bells in the, in the heads of so many U.S. policymakers. And that's part of why we see such a reaction now to thinking, OK, we need to wall off the U.S. tech industry. We need to wall off Silicon Valley. We need to protect our advantage. And I think there are definitely sort of legitimate uh, reasons and smart ways to do that um, when it comes to stuff that relates to national security specifically. But there's also a risk of uh, handicapping some of the things that made Silicon Valley such a powerful engine for this stuff um, when it comes to, you know, cutting off our own access to global AI talent and the like. So it's a very tricky phase right now, and. I hope that we're able to, we, in, in the sort of industry, in the policy world, we usually call this decoupling. And uh, my hope is that as we go through the process of decoupling these two ecosystems, we do it in a smart and relatively measured way.
0: The number of AI engineers are graduating, I think, every year. Someone was telling me when I, when I was in Asia, it was like it's like a football pitch of... of... <laughs> Graduates every year in China in comparison to there's a certain number of it But the, they've got the volume whether the whether the engineers are all of you know, you know, really really high standard But they have the volume and I mean is that is that what's going to count at the end of the day the, the number of engineers?
1: Yeah, I think it really depends on what one thinks will be important in the field of AI Is this, are we, you know, with deep learning, did we just kind of level up to a new plateau and now it's all about implementation and so it's just all about having a bunch of sort of good engineers, maybe not top, top tier researchers, but good engineers to found the companies and sort of build out the apparatus of applying deep learning? Or is the most important stuff going to come from cutting edge research? And depending on where you fall on that, probably in many ways determines how you view the U.S.-China competition in Uh, In the field of artificial intelligence, if you care the most about top-tier research most quantitative studies of of top-tier publications still show the United States having a very very strong advantage in this area if you look at uh, conferences like NeurIPS, the The overwhelming number of publications come from U.S. institutions. Over 50% of the sort of oral presentations at New come from U.S. institutions. So in that kind of realm of top-tier research, while China is showing greater promise, the the real work appears to be coming out of U.S. and, in many cases, European institutions. But if you look more, if you think this is more about sort of applying the, the methods of deep learning all across our economy, and uh, even you know to the military and whatnot then it might come down to not your top-tier talent but your sort of quantity of engineers that you're referring to and that area it's much more potentially up for grabs I I'm always hesitant to try to make statements on this without quantitative data to back it up because like you said the the big question is what, what's the real quality of the Chinese engineers what is the real quality coming out of the average Chinese University so I think we need good data on this and we need more people to do research on it, but I think at the very least you could say if it's more about this application of current AI methods, machine learning methods, then that would tilt it more towards China than top-tier research where the US and Europe still hold a very substantial lead.
0: Yeah because obviously I mean the best engineers would end up in, well not necessarily because there's some really excellent universities in in China also, but a lot of the you know really um exceptional people would would leave and attend stanford but and then they are being exported back let's say so you right. know you know it's, there's i don't know what the percentage is as you said but they're they're saying by 2030 i mean ai is going to drive most things so i mean at this rate i mean I, I don't know just from reading articles and um you think like it's definitely heavily weighted in china's favor
1: uh, to me the big question is yeah what what is going to matter is it going to be cutting edge research or is it going to be more of just kind of, you know, is AI, uh, if AI is quote unquote the new electricity, meaning like we already have it and fundamentally we just need to apply it to a million things, uh, we just, you know, the same way electricity was applied to appliances, to military technology, to communication, all that stuff. If it is in that if it does take on that mold, that nature, then China yet has a lot of runway. There are so many industries, traditional industries in China, that are still in many ways very sort of backwards. And the application of machine learning to these industries could lead to very large economic gains. But if the emphasis is much more on what comes out of the top tier labs, DeepMind, OpenAI, places like that, then those, those really top tier labs, are largely still in the united states there are still there are some really great ones coming out of places like Tsinghua and peking U um, and zhejiang university but the it would change my calculus greatly if i had you know if we had a, a definitive answer to that question of what's going to matter do
0: you see the power shifting shifting to asia to the east
1: i think certainly in relation to 20 years ago you have to say that you know 20 years ago what was it, you know, China was probably a fifth of its current, the size of its current economy. Japan was, I guess, in the throes of its recession at the time. Taiwan, you know, many of these countries that we later referred to as, you know, the Asian tigers and whatnot, they were basically low-wage, low-value-add manufacturing economies, and their ability to sort of lever up in several ways has has fundamentally changed sort of the balance of economic where the center of economic gravity is but yeah we've still yet to see whether this will lead to a sort of absolute change in quote-unquote leadership and what even that would mean you know it, it doesn't does it even make sense to directly compare these kinds and say okay who's better at technology who's stronger it's the it's a question that needs to also be sort of very granular as well as very sort of macro level and how we view it so Asia is certainly rising in a relative sense, and how long that runway is, we'll we'll have to see.
0: A lot of it's determined by the quality of the entrepreneurs, how how determined they are, how hungry they are, and I know they're hungry in the states, but would you not would because the market is so large. And in, in I mean, the only market to be in is really the the Asian market. I mean, the market is so so large. It's I mean, I'm not saying that about dismissing the U.S. market, but I would see the drive in the Chinese entrepreneurs has been a little bit more determined. Would I be right in saying that?
1: I would say definitely the sort of, um, yeah, the work habits and the intensity with which they approach uh, the task of creating a a technology company is almost unmatched. In, In some cases, it's very unmatched but it's always a bit of a double-edged sword having sort of worked in Chinese companies before and just spent a lot of time in society over there the, the way to approach many problems is kind of to throw resources at it to, th- to think that like working longer and longer and longer hours will achieve better and better and better results or even if you're not really doing something productive to just kind of be still working in some capacity and the same thing is done with kind of the way that they do investments just like more and more money as opposed to potentially a slightly more strategic approach to investing. So I would say that the determination has done them very well in kind of levering up to the sort of current status and in some ways that has been very beneficial to them. And but if you listen to even how Chinese entrepreneurs, Chinese engineers, Chinese researchers talk about their own ecosystem, they often say, "Yeah, but we're missing that something." And that something, you know, it's it's a, depending on who you ask, it can be very different things. But they worry that, for example, the emphasis on short-term gains, the emphasis on sort of winning a market very, 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 very quickly means that there's not as much focus put onto like long-term fundamental research, long-term research that could pay off down the road. I mean, you have companies like Google that in you know, in the late 2000s were already looking ahead to self-driving cars that were a decade or more away. And you don't yet have that many examples of Chinese... Companies or institutions having that kind of a long-term vision on things, because it's one of those things where the the market has grown so quickly that you you don't really you don't have time to like step back and kind of look ahead to those next things because you're so focused on like things could pivot and change so so quickly and the next sort of fortune to be made is going to be made in six months, not in ten years, and. In some ways that can kind of shift your focus in a way that uh, might be sort of short-term good but long-term not necessarily and but all this is changing on the fly and there's like diversity within both ecosystems around this in terms of the way people approach it but i'd say that would be one of the that would be my sort of cautionary note when we talk about the value of the kind of intensity of drive in chinese companies and institutions
0: Thanks for listening to my podcast. You'll find the podcast show Technologies Impacting Society over on Spotify or Apple. And you can check out the other episodes over on my website, www.inaom.io.